it's very common knowledge. And I've worked in a diocese. I've seen this myself firsthand, but I know other people where parishes are known by with a certain reputation. So for example, you have the liberal parish, you have the conservative parish. Well, a bishop will not assign a conservative priest to the liberal parish. Why? Because he knows the donation is going to dry up. I mean, a lot of times you'll have a rich liberal parish that bishop's not touching that thing with a 10-foot pole. He's giving them whatever they want. The pastor is going to tell them whatever they want to hear because he knows otherwise he's losing a lot of donations. And I think that is all too often true. And the same thing applies to government grants that the, the, the church does not want to speak out too strongly about something that that could cause them to lose that. And I think, and I don't think it's like a case where the bishops are living high off the hog and they live in their mansions. That's I just mean keeping the trains running. I mean, just keeping the the entity running because the fact is is that people are leaving for the doors. And so they're like, if we offend anybody else, if we offend anybody for that matter, we're just gonna dry up even more donations. And I don't want to be the bishop who declares bankruptcy. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Well, a very big and special welcome or a Cade Miller Falter, as they say back in my homeland, because we have some news before we get to that. You were just listening to my guest coming up. Eric Sammons, who is the editor of Crisis Magazine, a Catholic publication. Eric is the author of several books on Catholic evangelization and a book on the digital currency, Bitcoin. And he has a new book out about the state of the Catholic Church today called Deadly Indifference, How the Church Lost Her Mission and how we can reclaim it. Now, back to the other news. You just heard our fresh intro track along with the splendid voice of Ron Knight as we announce a brand new show title, Dig Life Deep. The show you fondly remember as Life on Planet Earth is now called Dig Life Deep. Dig it. The same mission to inform and entertain and find answers in an era of unparalleled scientific, economic, political and social upheaval. Watch for our website coming soon. Eric Salmon's new book, Deadly Indifference, Pulls No Punches. Some may consider it, well, provocative, controversial or otherwise a long overdue wake-up call to what some may see as a coming collapse or steep decline of the Catholic Church in America and in many parts of the globe. Eric is here to make sense of this and to tell us what he sees as the reasons for the Catholic Church's steady and continuing fall and what can be done about it. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. My own personal experience that the pastors who were the most loving, the, i.e. the ones who are there for you in your time of crisis, were also the ones who were willing to speak out and say, you need to change your life. Because I think we have a deformed view in our modern world of what love is. Yeah. I always joke with my kids, it's not L-U-V love. It's like true love is giving your entire life for the other and wanting the best for them. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Eric Sammons. He is a father of seven, a prolific author and editor of Crisis Magazine, a Catholic publication. And he is here to tell us what he believes has gone wrong in the Catholic Church and how it can be fixed. He'll also tell us about his new book on this topic, Deadly Indifference. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Eric, welcome to my show. 
Thanks so much for having me. This is great. I, I really appreciate you inviting me on. Where are you today? I'm located in Ohio. Okay, your summer's going well? Yes, it is. We actually haven't, it has not been too hot here, so which has been nice. We don't need humidity. We, we suffer from the humidity in the Northeast, New York, New Jersey area, but past few days haven't been so bad. You're here to talk about your new book and more generally about Catholic issues, if we could get into a few of them. And it's called Deadly Indifference. In some ways, or in most ways, it's really about the crisis, as you see it, in the Catholic Church today. My first question to you is, is that the Catholic Church in the U.S. or worldwide? Yeah, I, I would say it's a worldwide phenomenon, but I focused my book mostly on America and mostly Western Europe. I think Western Europe and America is where the crisis is the greatest and the most pronounced, but I also think it, it exists elsewhere in the world. If we look at the church by one metric, which is in my estimation is not always the best metric because statistics can lie and hide a lot of underlying strengths sometimes and there's some ironies in, in numbers as well you went back to the 50s in america where the majority of catholics went to church i mean i saw a statistic as high as 70 percent or so i'm sure in europe it was even much higher i know in my own native ireland up to recent times, well, recent times being, I suppose, 30 years ago, the majority of people are, are close to it, went to church at least once a week. You take today's church attendance in America, we're down to something like 25%, even if that's a reliable barometer. And I hear Catholics in different parishes saying the numbers are dropping, they're dropping. Then, of course, we can figure out and ask question about why. Popular answers are this church scandals haven't helped at all. They've damaged the church enormously. You could look at secularization, mass consumerism, indifference of another kind, and relativism, uh, which may get to the point of your book. Why do you see this indifference and how do you define it, the crisis? And what is your book to tell us about all of that? Well, I would say all those reasons you gave are all true. I think there's a lot of factors that have led to the decline of the Catholic Church over the past 50 years. But what I'm really focused on, I think is a big, a big part of it, is just the fundamental fact that most Catholics just don't think it's that important to be Catholic. And if you're part of an organization that you don't think, any organization that you don't think is that important to be part of, two things are going to happen. One is you're not going to talk to other people about joining your organization. And second, if you don't really like certain parts of that organization, you're just going to leave. You're not going to think it's that important to overcome those obstacles, those challenges, those doubts about being a member of it. And that's true for any organization. And what we've seen is, is that particularly before 1950s and before, Catholics had a very strong identity. They, th their first identity was as a Catholic, and that was who they were, and that was very important to them. They couldn't even conceive of the possibility of not being Catholic, most of them. Yet today, so many Catholics, they just don't see it being of vital importance to be Catholic. They don't really see how it changes their life, but more importantly, I would say they don't see how it changes their potential for eternal life. And, and that's really what I focus on a lot is the fact that most Catholics today believe that your salvation does not, your religion does not matter for your salvation, that no matter what religion you are uh, or no religion at all, that you're probably going to get to heaven. Most people are going to get to heaven. And that is not, that was not the case, let's say a hundred years ago, your typical Catholic kind of assumed that if you weren't Catholic, you're in real trouble if you die. And and that that really does change that there's a lot there's theological implications of that but it also has practical implications of how you treat your own faith and how you share your faith with other people a lot has happened in the catholic church in a generation or in the last 50 or so years we had the second vatican council and we moved um away from the traditional tridentine mass and some of the ideas and and maybe dogma if that's the correct word that we used to hold on to have disappeared does that explain some of this as well i think it explains a lot of it because what we really see is there's a there's a huge shift in emphasis 
among church leaders in the 1960s. Vatican II was part of that, but that wasn't all it was. Vatican II is more of a reflection of this shift of emphasis than anything, in that all of a sudden, and it does seem like all of a sudden, I know it did build, it's not like it happened overnight and somebody flipped the switch, but almost overnight, church leaders started to change their focus, change their emphasis from focusing on the errors of other religions and the truth of Catholicism as the, as the one true faith, to now saying, okay, let's think, say what we can about the goodness of other religions and how they're, they're right. And some of that is understandable, especially in the context of the 1960s, coming out of the World War, in this, the, the possibility of, of another world war, which would be the last one because it'd be a nuclear one. And so you had this idea of let's all get along. Let's have peace. Let's focus on the good and others. Okay. And, and I'm the first to say, I, I like the idea of focusing on peace and, and trying to avoid war and conflict. But what happened was is that very quickly morphed into, we're also never going to talk about what's wrong about other religions, what we believe, how they're false and, and they're erroneous. And then it even got to the point where we're not even going to talk about what's wrong with certain lifestyles, with certain uh, moral practices, let's say abortion or something like that. So now we've got to the point where we don't say anything's wrong with anybody. And that has an impact on the person in the pew where they don't really have these distinctions in their mind of, okay, here's what we believe, here's what you believe, and here's where we differ, and here's why I think you're wrong, and you can be free to say why you think we're wrong. I mean, you hear it all the time. I was just talking to somebody who was saying how she was at a friend's house, I think like a friend's house, and there was a, a Muslim neighbor nearby, and they were talking. The, the Muslim was there as well, and, and her friend just basically said, well, you know, our religions are basically the same. Mm. And I think this Catholic sincerely believed that Islam and Catholicism were essentially the same. They were no different. And that comes from nobody, would, no Catholic would have said that 100 years ago. But the reason they say now is because there's been such an emphasis on what we hold in common, what's good about the other religions, that we don't have those distinctions anymore. Where should this change that is needed, as you seem to be suggesting, come from? I, I would presume the church leaders. And of course, they speak out on a wide range of topics and they issue tons of documents. And unfortunately, some of it never gets a lot of headlines or attentions. Trying to figure all of that out. I mean, I would say it definitely starts with church leaders. I think all Catholics, though, would fall into this, that I, I think Catholic church leaders need to be more clear that we really believe being Catholic is of essential importance for everybody and that our faith is the, 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 we are the church that Christ founded. And so that we are the path of salvation and, and make that very clear. And I, I found in my own experience that most people respect that and they don't like, they don't get offended that you think that because they think their religion is the right, the right one. So it, I find that most Catholic leaders are just terrified to say anything like that. But to me, it's like that's just you believe what you you, you know you believe what you're um, what you're practicing, and I, I just it's almost like they apologize for being Catholic. You hear Catholic bishops talk in ways that they're almost apologetic, like we're sorry we're Catholic. And I'm not saying you shove it in other people's faces or, or that you even have to get super triumphalistic. I'm just simply saying you make it very distinctive what you believe and you say this i believe is the path to salvation and it's the way that jesus himself set up and i think that it starts with them but i think even individual catholics uh when you're talking to others uh, about your faith that that you make those distinctions you're not so quick to just say oh we believe the same thing or anything like that but say no here's what i believe uh, i know it's different what you believe but here's why i believe it too as I recall, Pope Benedict got himself in some hot water many years ago in Europe when his speech went awry or was misreported when he was talking right. about distinctions here, Islam, Catholicism, and its role. Right. Uh, something I, went I, wrong. Something went horribly wrong. And, and, and yeah. the Vatican, as I recall, had to somehow issue a clarification. Right. Yeah. Well, he, he was quoting an old Byzantine emperor who said something to the effect of anything that comes uniquely out of Islam is, is violence or against the truth, something like that. I can't remember. And he was quoting him. And he in the speech, he even said, this isn't really what we, we say today or think today, but you know, this is what they believed. Um, 
And that alone was enough to set a firestorm. But I really think that's because we've spent so long never making these distinctions that even the slightest suggestion of distinction now causes a a media uh, uproar. And I do think that would happen in in many cases, but I think it, it starts even at the parish level where priests in their homilies and in their catechesis would just simply say, here's our distinctions, here's what we believe, and build it up so that it isn't controversial for a pope simply to quote an old emperor uh, about Islam. And, and, you know, in other words, you don't lead with the pope tomorrow saying Islam is a false religion or something like that. Yeah. You, you build because of the fact that we've been for so long not saying these things. But then what you do is you build up at, at the parish level, at the diocesan level, so that it, it's known that, hey, Catholics really actually believe what they say they believe. They're not, they're not just here as a social club, but they're here really as a, a, they, they believe this faith that they, that they profess. But hasn't one of the big pushes, the agendas, if you will, of the churches is interfaith dialogue? And I'm just wondering where would that put that if you had the bishops and cardinals saying, hey, guys, This is the right place to come to. Salvation is through the Catholic Church and penance. Don't you dare even consider moving across the street to that evangelical church where they're doing all the singing and hymn praying and all that kind of stuff. I mean, is it practical? Yeah, in my opinion, the the interreligious dialogue is mostly a waste of time. Hmm. I I think there's there's ways we can work with our non-Catholics to help society. For example... Uh, I converted from Protestantism to Catholicism mostly through my involvement in the pro-life movement. A perfect example of where Catholics and Protestants, particularly, and even Orthodox Christians and some others, work together for a common goal. Those are great things. But most interreligious dialogue today that's done at the church level, at the official level, it's simply leaders of both religions sitting around talking about what they agree with, and they, then they have a cocktail party afterwards. And it just really does not advance anything at this point. Because here's the fact. You can find out what any religion believes in about 10 minutes now because of the internet. It's not like we really, like in the 1960s, I understand there was an an effort to say, okay, we don't really understand what Muslims believe or Hindus believe or whatever. Let's work together. Everybody knows now. I mean, they can find out very easily. So I would honestly say I'd scrap all the official interreligious dialogue uh, and just work together on specific uh, ways to improve society like the pro-life movement or helping the poor or something like that. What, in your view, then, is the mission or the core message of the Catholic Church that the faithful should be hearing much more? I think that the core mes- mission of the church is the salvation of souls. We are the only way you get to heaven, and that is through the Catholic Church. And so that should be the focus of everything. So, like, for example, at most parishes, most Catholic parishes, there's a billion and one activities, at least before COVID. I know that kind of killed some of it, but there's a billion and one activities. And how many of them are focused on how can we help people get to heaven? Because that's the one thing a Catholic parish can do that nowhere else can do. So you can have sports clubs other places. You can have book clubs with other groups. You can do all these different things, you, but you cannot get the salvation of souls the grace that comes from the sacraments, except for in a Catholic parish. And so that should be the focus of everything the church does. Now, there are corollary things you will do, for example, help the poor. That's not like you would stop doing that, but you're doing it with the idea of salvation of souls in mind that these people are Jesus Christ that you're helping. And so you do it for that reason. And in when you're helping them, you're also doing. You're also thinking of their salvation as well. You're bringing them, hopefully, to the Catholic Church. So that should be the real laser focus. And I feel like that you have priests, parish priests, so often who are so busy with so much administrative work, they're just pulled in so many different directions, and so much of it's wasted. I mean, because they can do something nobody else can do, and that's bring the sacraments to us. And that should be the number one thing they do is they should be preaching the gospel and bringing the sacraments to us. And, and, you know, overseeing all these different committees and things like that, it just ends up taking away from their, their core mission. I've had that discussion with a guest recently who's a priest, and we were talking about that priests as kind of hotel administrators today, <laughs> you know, the amount of time. I think Pope Francis used that phrase. So, okay, yeah, that's a good one. It. 
But, you know, the amount of hours, it's true, no fault of their own. It's just been landed on them in many cases because right. nobody has to do it. But you bring up two interesting points. One, the, the idea of the, the, the charitable works, which I, I personally think leaving aside religion are very important. And then bringing the Catholic faith into it, I also think is important. So are you just saying then having social services, somebody listening to this will say, oh, Eric has an ulterior motive. He doesn't care about the charity. He just wants to save their soul, which I guess is fine too. Does that that sound a little cruel? Yeah. I mean, the truth is we do want to save their soul. If somebody, the greatest poverty somebody could be in is to not to not uh, know Jesus. I mean, that's the greatest poverty above anything else. And Mother Teresa was very clear about this, that the focus was the salvation of souls. Even though she was doing all this charitable work and lifting the poor from the streets and mothers who had no place to give birth. Wonderful works. And that's that's exactly what we do. And that's what we should do as Catholics because we, but what's the driving force we're doing it for? I think there's a real difference between a true Catholic charity and a social service, because I think a social service only looks at the, at the physical, at the body. But we are all, everybody, from the, the poorest person on the street to the richest person in the world, we are body and soul, and we need both. And so a true Catholic charity, what it does is it, it, help, it, brings, uh, it helps both. And so if somebody is poor, and, and let's say they're starving on the street, Well, you don't walk up to them and say, hey, you need Jesus. No, they need food. (laughs) And so you help them first with that. But that doesn't mean, and you're not doing it just so you can say, uh, tell them about Jesus and tell them about the Catholic Church. You do it because that's what they need. And that's Jesus starving there. That's why you do it. But at the same time, when you are ministering to them, you bring the whole message of the gospel. You're trying to help both their body and their soul. So it really does tie in together. If you don't help their physical needs, then you're a hypocrite and you, you, you're not being a good witness. And so they're not going to care about their spirit, what you think about their spiritual needs. But if you don't help their spiritual needs, you're really leaving them in poverty. So I think it really, they, they're, they're closely intertwined the two when we do acts of charity. And I think it's what should distinguish, doesn't always do this. It should distinguish Catholic charities from social services and, 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 and other uh, charitable actions from other groups. So another way of thinking about that is that if we have our faith uh, in God and we're moving along the right path to salvation, as you describe it, then God will take care of us along the way with our, all our needs, presumably, or will answer our prayers in time of need. But he, he will allow us to go through great suffering. I mean, some of the greatest saints have gone through some great suffering, and there's no we have no guarantee that we won't go through that suffering, even if we're completely dependent upon God. Uh, because, you know, there's a famous quote from St. Teresa of Avila when she was this, you know, great saint and she's doing all this for God and she has some trouble. I think she like her, her, she's going somewhere and her carriage broke down or something like that. And she's like, well, God, if this is how you, you know, this is how you treat your friends. It's no wonder you have so few of them. <laughs> and so it's like the, the, the fact is that. Which reminds me, Eric, my car broke down the other day. So I have to remember that 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 story you told. That's right. Exactly. So don't stop being friends with God for it. But, you know, but maybe he gave that to you as a little uh, suffering uh, to help others or somehow. But the, the, the point is, is that. We are going to go through sufferings, and when we see the sufferings of others, we, we should do all we can to alleviate them. Obviously, I can't solve the problems of the sufferings of everybody in the world, but I can help with the sufferings of those around me, those I'm closest to in my community and my family and friends, things like that. And I'm obligated to do it. The fact of the matter is, is Jesus was very clear about this. If you don't help the poor, you're going to hell. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. Now, how you help the poor depends on your state of life. Uh, your own personal situation, things like that. But if you simply ignore the poor, uh, you're not you're not you're not practicing Catholic, frankly. Folks who are not Catholic and members of other religions or no religion, will they get to heaven if they lead a good life? No, that's that, they will, that clearly that they. I, I, I the way you put it, I would say the answer is no. To understand? Yeah, if you say. Uh, if you make the statement, will they get to heaven if they lead a good life? No, because the truth is our Lord himself said, no one is good, but God alone. It's impossible to truly live a good life in the, in the true definition of the term. Nobody is able to get to heaven under their own power. That's actually an old heresy called Pelagian, 
Pelagianism, in which the belief that we could get ourselves to heaven through our works, through our uh, just being good and things like that. We need the grace of God. And the number one, we get the grace of God is through baptism. Mm. And so you need to be baptized. Now, the church, and the, the, so the ordinary way in which somebody gets to heaven is being baptized and then living a sacramental life as a Catholic, being faithful, like helping the poor and doing whatever, doing prayer and things like that. That's how we get to heaven. The fact of the matter is, is that because of original sin, we're, we're directed away from God. And most of us, most people are directed away from God. Now, the church has also always said that somebody could get to heaven who is um, not Catholic through what's called baptism of desire. And so what that means is essentially that they, in their conscience, they desired to follow God and they did the best they could in the situation they were in. And God will see that and they could get to heaven. But that's an extraordinary means. And I mean that in the true sense of the word of extraordinary. It's not the ordinary means. And the, the fact of the matter is, is as Catholics, we can know if somebody's baptized, lives a Catholic life and dies in the state of grace, they're going to heaven. That's our Lord's promise. They will get to heaven. If somebody doesn't do that, we can hope for their salvation. We can pray for it. We can, after they die, we can continue to pray for it, but we can't know because God has told us the way to get to heaven. And if we don't follow that way, we're, we're, we're putting our salvation in jeopardy. And that's true for both Catholics and non-Catholics because the Catholic who doesn't really live their faith is, is in that same danger. Why do church leaders not speak out on this? We've talked about this earlier, obviously, but wouldn't you think it's something obvious that they should just lay it out straight to the faithful? I think I ask uh, Ralph Martin, who wrote a book on on this topic as well. Uh, he's a Catholic um, uh, professor of theology, and he was. And I think I liked his answer. He basically said because they want to be liked, they want to be comfortable. They don't want the world to hate them because if we did, you you said so. So, so some of our leaders are, are are lacking in backbone and moral courage. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that's true. I think I think all of us do that in some ways because. I know in my own life, when I don't speak up, when I'm in a situation where I don't speak up about something, some aspect of the faith that I should, it's usually because I was a coward. I lacked the moral courage. And so, and I think that that all too often our church leaders are doing that as well. They're simply not having the courage to say what, what they need to say, what they're duty bound to say as bishops, as successors, apostles, because they're afraid of the blowback, because they see what happens like when Pope Benedict even like had something that kind of suggested maybe Islam isn't great, he got a huge blowback for it. And, and so I just think honestly it comes down to fear. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Eric Sammons, author of a new book, Deadly Indifference, How the Church Lost Her Mission and How We Can Reclaim It. Here's Eric describing Catholic parish life as many in his eyes may experience it in America today. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. In parish life today, so many, I mean, you could go to a parish for years and never feel uncomfortable about your life, no matter how you're living. And the whole purpose of going to a parish is that that's kind of a way station on the way to heaven. That's supposed to help you get there. And yet you could go to parish and never hear about sin, about abortion, about uh, needing to improve your prayer life, about going to confession. And I think what happens is it just, you get the whole vibe that it's just like this social club. It's just something you do on Sunday mornings and you kind of hang out with some of your friends and things like that. Maybe you go to the parish picnic or whatever, but really there's not this uh, strong drive to change your life. And really that's what should be happening. You should feel uncomfortable on a regular basis at mass <laughs> with the homily, or if you go to different activities at the parish or you see different things that the, the pastor writes, that should make you, and I say that to everybody, because none of us are living a perfect life, but yet we don't have that. So not only do we not challenge non-Catholics to, to maybe change the way they're living, we're not even challenging ourselves. And so we have this very flabby Catholicism 
where you just kind of live it out. And it's, it's almost like this little extra, like a coat you put on on Sundays. It's not really part of who we are as, as human beings and as Catholics living out in the world. Some people listening to you will no doubt be saying, gee, I want to go to the church on Sunday to be uplifted, to feel joyful. I want answers to the existential crisis of our time, to the idea of community, and then maybe back into salvation. I I don't know if the priest got up every Sunday, I'm just playing devil's advocate, Mm -hmm. pardon the pun, uh, and started to talk about abortion, and then next Sunday talking about contraception, and then the following about, oh, you shouldn't be divorced, people, and then immoral lifestyle. I I don't know, maybe just people, I'm sure they'd be afraid people would walk out eventually or not return. Yeah, and I think some would. And I wouldn't even advocate for the the way you describe it because there's a pastoral strategy. The problem is our pastoral strategy always is never say anything about those things. And what I'm saying, there needs we need to restore a balance. So there will be a Sunday where you preach about perhaps divorce, which is something never talked about, mm-hmm. and about the sin of divorce and evil divorce. And I'm talking about when I say the sin of divorce, somebody who chooses it, obviously not somebody who's left by their spouse through no fault of their own. But the fact is, is that that we never talk about any of those things, like the need to go to confession and really tell people you need to go to confession regularly. Every one of us needs to go, uh, preferably like once a month. We need to go, we need to hear about these things because, uh, you know, one of the most important things for evangelization is we, evangelization means the good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. But you can't know the good news without first knowing the bad. You can't accept the good news because if you only hear everything is great, you have no reason to change your life. You have no reason to really embrace it fully. And that's why we have so many Catholics. If you look at all the different Pew studies and, and different studies on this polls, they don't really believe what the church teaches. They don't believe that the mm-hmm. Eucharist is truly the body, blood of Jesus and soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. They don't believe abortion is murder. I, in fact, we just I just published an article at Crisis Magazine where I'm the editor on the practice of, of American Catholic women when it comes to fertility, how many of them uh, practice contraception, have had used the morning after pill, have used the, uh, have, have had abortions. It's almost no different than any other religion. And yet, of course, our faith teaches us that all these things are wrong because, and I think it's true that many Catholic women don't even know, for example, that contraception, artificial contraception is against the teaching of the church. They, they literally are ignorant of that because they've, they've, and ones who've gone to mass for their whole lives might not even know that. So I think there's this need for a balance that, yeah, you don't get up there every single Sunday. You're not just, you know, Easter Sunday, you shouldn't be preaching against abortion or something like that. You know, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a rhythm to this. There's a balance to this. But during Lent, you should be preaching about sin and about repentance and about the need to change your life. That's the purpose of Lent. So there is this whole balance that's needed where we're preaching about both the bad news and the good news. And then, of course, again, playing devil's advocate, some will say, well, isn't the greatest commandment to love one another? And God said, love one another, and you'll know your disciples by the love they show for one another. People want to see that. The the, the faithful want to see the person in the pew to them and outside and in the community. Everybody don't want to sound touchy-feely here, but getting along with each other and being there in their moments of personal crisis and when they need a shoulder to cry on, and then at the same time go about following the path of salvation. I think there's a little bit of integration needed in all of those areas. Yes, and I think we need to understand what true love is. So, for example, if your spouse is an alcoholic, it's not true love to ignore it and to say nothing about it. You you would want to do something about it. You'd want to get them help. You'd want to confront them and maybe you know have an intervention where you tell them, you need to do something about this. This is destroying you. It's the same thing with any sin. Sin destroys us. And if you have a loved one who is caught up in sin, if you truly love them, you will try to help them to get out of it. And I found in my, my own personal experience that the pastors who were the most loving, the, i.e. the ones who are there for you in your time of crisis, were also the ones who were willing to speak out and say, you need to change your life. Because I think we have a deformed view in our modern world of what love is. Yeah. I always joke with my kids, it's not L-U-V love. It's like true love is giving your entire life for the other and wanting the best for them. And the best for somebody has never sinned. And so again, there's this balance where if somebody, for example, has had a crisis in their life, you're there for them and you're doing everything you can for them. Uh, But if somebody is causing their own crisis in their life through their bad choices, 
Well, you're there for them by confronting them saying, you got to change your life. You got to change how you're living because that's the only way you're going to get out of this. Because some people, their crisis is self-caused. I mean, it's through their own bad choices and you need Mm -hmm. to help them to see that. And the only way you can do that is you're going to have uncomfortable conversations at times. So yeah, there's this whole, there is the, the balance between the proclamation of the truth and this pastoral need, but they're not opposed to each other. They're, they should be integrated and united as one. So sort of a, a kind of tough love. Yeah. At times that's, it, at times that's what's needed. And I think we, I think most church leaders avoid that way too often because they're afraid of the blowback. Cause yeah, you will potentially get somebody who gets upset at you. That, that definitely, I mean, Look at Jesus. <laughs> yeah. They got pretty upset at him. So sure. it's a good model to follow. <laughs> Where does the church's financial position play in all of this and its tax-exempt status? Going off in a little different gear here, I realize, but maybe we shouldn't underestimate that because the church has had problems with its finances. So I'm, I'm wondering, sometimes do the bishops uh, play nice with government and local authorities? And did they yeah. do that during COVID? And then by extension, did they play nice on everything just for its survival as a physical entity? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. I think, for example, it's very common knowledge. And I've worked in a diocese. I've seen this myself firsthand, but I know other people where parishes are known by with a certain reputation. So for example, you have the liberal parish, you have the conservative parish. Well, a bishop will not assign a conservative priest to the liberal parish. Why? Because he knows the donation is going to dry up. I mean, a lot of times you'll have a rich liberal parish. That bishop's not touching that thing with a 10-foot pole. He's giving them whatever they want. The pastor is going to tell them whatever they want to hear because he knows otherwise he's losing a lot of donations. And I think that is all too often true. And the same thing applies to government grants that the, the, the church does not want to speak out too strongly about something that, that could cause them to lose that. And I think, and I don't think it's like a case where the bishops are living high off the hog and they live in their mansions. That's, I just mean, keeping the trains running. I mean, just keeping the, the entity running because the fact is, is that people are leaving for the doors. And so they're like, if we offend anybody else, if we offend anybody, for that matter, we're just going to dry up even more donations. And I don't want to be the bishop who declares bankruptcy. And, and so I think it's more a matter of that than it is like they're trying. I mean, some of the bishops we found do live like that, but I think most of them are not, they're not like in it for the material gain for themselves. It's more a matter of, they just have to keep the budget from going in the red. And so they just don't want to offend anybody. So I, I, I think financial considerations are part of it. Are there any pockets of hope, positivity in all of this uh, as you look across the various dioceses in America and worldwide. I mean, I can think of some places which are flourishing and some orders that are flourishing. They mostly are the traditional orders and they're getting recruits and their seminaries are bulging with vocation. But that's that seems to be a minority part of the equation. It's a tiny part. And I think, honestly, though, that is where all the hope is. Uh, the, the religious orders that have kept their charism and been, remained traditional in, in their beliefs and, and practices are the ones that are doing the best. And I think that is where we have our signs of hope, because ultimately, we've, we've been in this decline for over 50 or 60 years now. It's not turning around tomorrow. And so we saw this, you know, specifically traditional Latin mass parishes have just been booming over the past couple of years, uh, particularly since the McCarrick scandal that seemed to all of a sudden people were like, I'm tired of this. I'm going to go uh, completely all in, so to speak, with tradition. And you see this uh, a lot. I mean, my own parish has, which is a traditional Latin mass parish, has, has tripled, quadrupled in size in the past year or two. So, so let me uh, just know- stop you on that, Eric. That's that's yeah. interesting because I was at a Latin mass recently. I didn't see a lot of people in the church. It might have been just a day of the week. I, w- I popped in, but they're they're growing, right? They, they, yeah. And- oh, yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm getting ready to do a survey that, that kind of shows this. But anecdotally, and I, I want to make sure I'm clear on that, I'm not claiming I have a lot of data yet on it, but I'm actually gathering it. Anecdotally, I've heard from all over the country, people saying my Latin mass parish, I used to be able to get there uh, two minutes before and get a seat near the front. Now it's like, I, I just can't even find somewhere to sit anymore. And, and it's happening all over. And I think it really is a reaction of people who want the, the, the you know, what's called the whole council of the, of the gospel, where everything is preached and we're not shying away from the hard teachings. We're teaching those as well as everything else. 
and 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 they're really committing to the faith. And I think that's a great pocket of hope. Now, I will say when you, when you put it in context of the worldwide church, it's a tiny minority. It's a tiny minority. I mean, we're talking like a traditional mass parishes in this country. I have no idea how many there are, but I would guess we're talking maybe 10,000, something like that. And there's, you know, there's 60 some million Catholics, self-identified Catholics in America. So we're still talking a very small number of people, but the point is it's the only growing segment of the church are these, are these orders and, and parishes that are embracing tradition. And so if I'm a church leader, I'm thinking I need at least to look at what they're doing because they're the only ones doing anything that's that's gaining members. The rest of us are all losing. And so it's just like if you're running a corporation, if one divi- if you're the CEO and one division's doing great and the rest of the divisions are doing terrible, who do you call in for a meeting? Yeah. <laughs> the head of that division say, what are you doing? Because I want it to be transferred to these other guys as well or gals. And so I feel like that's 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 a sign for hope though, because, and I see it like a lot of people like our parish, like I said, we've gained a lot of members. People come up to me and they're new to the parish and, and they're just so excited. And they, they're not they're not there for any political reasons. They're not there because of, I don't know, There's you get these politics inside the church between different clans within the church. They don't want anything to do with that. That's not why they're there. They're simply there because it's a beautiful mass. It really, and, and, and the whole council of the gospel is preached. And so that really is why they're there. And I find that's a great sign of hope. My impression of the demographics, if you will, of those attending the traditional Latin Mass were faithful Catholics, to be sure, and some older folks who um, loved the Latin Mass and maybe a sense of nostalgia there. And I use this word carefully, sophisticated people or people who want depth, but I don't see a lot of rank-and-file Catholics embracing the traditional Mass. Well, that's not really been my experience. It, it was funny because my first struggle in traditional at mass, I lived in a different diet state at that time. And it's about 10 years ago. I was struck by the fact that in my old parish, in the suburban parish, everybody was a white collar professional worker. Like almost everybody I knew was, was like that. But then at this parish, which was in a similar type of area, but people traveled. I mean, I met a lot of uh, blue collar workers uh, who were there. Um, they weren't like educated in theology. And there, yeah. there definitely were the professor types, which was kind yeah. of more my angle, to be honest, more yeah. the intellectual Because I've listened types. to a lot of interviews with, on, on Catholic media and it was one intellectual debating another about the Latin right. mass. And I figured, oh, that's who's going to these. And it's true that that's what you're going to see on the internet because the, the blue collar worker, he's not going to be interviewed on YouTube for, mm-hmm. or anywhere on any podcast. Yeah. Usually he's just going there. He probably might not even be able to explain to you exactly mm-hmm. the nuances of all it all means. He's just like, I just like going here because it's, it's a, it's a sanctuary out of my, my life and things like that. So, and also the big, the big thing, if you go to most Latin mass parishes, the big one is young families. You get a lot of young families, families that are, the parents are usually in their, in their late twenties or thirties, things like that. They have young kids, uh, big families, um, lots of big families. Um, so yeah, it, it's a really, it's a very diverse group um, of people that I found it. This is my experience and what I've heard from others, but I, I don't claim to have gone to every Latin Mass Parish, of course, uh, but just traveling around some and talking to others, it's, it's very common. You get young people. And yes, there's no question there is the biggest advocates for the Latin Mass online and other places are going to be your intellectual types. And that's that's just the, I think it's probably kind of the nature of, of who they are and, and they want to go out and teach everybody about it, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's understandable because some of the change um, that we talk about and some of the need for reform are coming from people who've widely read on the topic and who've studied and analyzed and synthesized the situation. So by nature, many of them are intellectuals. Right. Uh, what do you make of the top man in the job, um, Pope Francis? Uh, some, I don't know if this is fair or not, have called him a heretic. I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call him a heretic. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the, I would say that he has done a lot of things that have led people down the wrong path. That he, a lot of his actions, especially when we're talking about the subject of my book, when it, religious indifference, a lot of things he's done have been continued that path towards religious indifference. I mean, there's a famous uh, declaration he made, a joint declaration he made with a, a leading uh, Muslim leader, where it actually states that the will of God, the plurality of religions is the will of God 
which that is heretical on its face. Now they they tried to kind of explain a little bit, and okay, you could probably uh, explain it away somewhat, but there's no question in my mind that by his actions and his words, he has helped foster religious indifference. Now. The fact is, I think the same is true of uh, John Paul II, for example, whom I, I, think I remember that, picking that yeah. up in an interview, and I'm glad you brought it up because he's one of my favorite uh, popes. I still like yeah. the guy, but yeah. th- right. you tell me in your words. Yeah, I think it's one of these things where we have a tendency to want to make everybody either a good guy or a bad guy. Like JP2 is a great, a good guy, good pope. Francis is a bad pope. I think it's a lot more complicated than that because like John Paul II, particularly, I mean, he's a great man. I mean, there's just, you can't deny that fact that he's a great man. He was a great world leader. Um, I became Catholic under his pontificate. I remember going to World Youth Day in Denver about six months later. And I just, you know, and I have a lot of admiration for him. But I think when it comes to the specifically the topic of interreligious dialogue, I think he really uh, did a poor job. He really helped foster religious indifference. Not not that that was his intention, but that was the result of his actions. And so for me, Pope Francis is just more, it, it just does that even more so, but it's not like he's different completely than, than, than his predecessor. He's not a, a rupture from what particularly John Paul II and Paul VI and Benedict XVI some did. Um, so, but honestly, in this issue, I think I think uh, Pope Francis is is uh, doing a great disservice to Catholics by all, a lot of his talk about other religions and not distinguishing that the Catholic Church, which he leads, is the one true faith. I mean, if anybody's going to think the Catholic Church is the one true faith, it should be the Pope, right? I mean, if anybody's allowed to yeah. say that, it should be the Pope. Yeah. Uh, and, but yet, they, they even the popes have shied away from saying that. Where does all this leave the Catholic Church? Can it survive in the U.S.? Uh, could it collapse and become so small that it's just really unrecognizable anymore? I mean, our Lord promised that the church would always prevail, but that does not mean pockets of it and segments of it always will. And we saw like 16th century England, the Catholic Church basically disappeared almost overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the same thing could happen here. I personally, I'm very pessimistic about the short term. I think I think COVID helped accelerate the decline. The decline had had been going since 1970s, 60s. It accelerated in two, around 2000. So COVID accelerated this decline because they closed the, the church doors. And yes. I used to say, Eric, they should have kept masses, in-person masses. Well, absolutely. It was the government, of course, came down, but they didn't resist. That. Absolutely. But yeah. even in even in states where it was in my state, home state of Ohio, the governor did not make it uh, did not make it illegal for religious services to gather. Even during the lockdown, he had an exemption for religious services, but he pressured them to go ahead and close mass, and they did. And I think that was a great mistake because I think it sent the message to the world that the Catholic bishops do not think mass is essential. Yeah, and because remember we talked all about essential yeah. and non-essential services. They said it was non-essential. It was essential to keep Home Depot open and 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 the grocery store, but it's not essential to keep Catholic churches open. I think that sends a message. So I personally think in the short term we're we're in for more of a steep decline. I would not surprise me at all if within ten years, twenty thirty, that the 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 demographics of the church, Catholic Church in America, are greatly reduced from today and where we have way fewer parishes and and way fewer priests and way fewer Catholics practicing. And I just think that's a reality. I think trying to have rose-colored glasses and act like everything is hunky-dory isn't going to help us. Now, I do think, though, that because we have signs for hope, I think we can rise from it over time. We have that small pocket. I mean, it's funny because Pope Benedict, when he was a priest, Father Joseph Ratzinger, so in 1970, he made a prediction that he thought back then the Catholic Church would be a lot, would contract and become a lot smaller. But out of that, it would be this faithful remnant that would then rebuild the church again. And I, I personally think he's he he was right in that prediction. I think that's exactly what's going to have to happen. Is it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I do think because of our Lord's promises and and the faithfulness of a, a small group of Catholics, um, I do think we can rebuild from it. It just might be a rough ride until we get there. <laughs> yeah. Just quickly go back to COVID. So if the bishops had stood up to the government, you think that would have won plaudits from the faithful and those outside the church say, well, you know, here's somebody taking them on and right. faith is so important. And it might have helped offset some of the huge damage that has been caused by the scandals and other issues through the last 20 or so years. It could have been so different if they had handled COVID in a a, a different manner. That's what you're saying. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, I definitely think they would have gotten attacked by, by in many sectors. We saw what happened when anybody did not go lockstep along with the lockdowns. Um, but at the same time, I feel like respect would be gained by people of, of goodwill who would see these people really believe what they say. And that's mm-hmm. what I said at the beginning was, mm-hmm. is that we don't really believe that Catholicism is important. And what the bishops would be saying if they resisted the lockdowns, they could have even been creative about it, done masses outside or something like that. But I personally think some bishops should have challenged these unconstitutional laws that were that were mandates. They weren't even laws, mandates by governors and just say, no, I'm going to have mass anyway. Come and arrest me and, and challenge it in court. Because the fact of the matter is, is these state mandates, they had no authority to shut down churches. And so I think there a lot of respect would have been gained that at very least they would have said, hey, these Catholics actually believe that going to mass is important. And I think that gains the respect of, let's say, for example, your sincere evangelical Protestants who are like, they look and say, wow, those guys really believe this stuff is important. I, I'm going to look to them instead of my own, maybe my own uh, church shut down, but these Catholics keep going. I'm going to look to them. I think it would have set the Catholic mm. church apart as something uh, to, to look towards and, and to have a, a newfound respect for. The name of your book is Deadly Indifference, How the Church Lost Her Mission and How We Can Reclaim It. So there's a positive message there as well. The reclaiming part is what might get a lot of people's attention, how we can get out of this morass. Yes. I didn't want to just end on, okay, things are bad. I mean, I go through the history of how we got in this situation. I try to detail so people understand how we got to where we are. But then my whole last section of my book is how can we get out of it? How can at a parish level, an individual level, even a diocesan level, uh, how can we g- get out of this and really reclaim the mission of the church, which is the salvation of souls? And the publisher is Sophia Institute Press. And you also mentioned earlier that you are the editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine. So you have a full plate there and uh, you're a father of seven. Good reception for the book, Eric. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a struggle to write at times because trying to condense all this stuff into one book and and explain it in a way that's very readable. I didn't want to, this is not intended to be like an intellectual book for professors. It's intended to be for your average Catholic to be able to read and understand. And I've had a lot of people say that that, that, that I was able to accomplish that goal. It's an accessible read. Thanks for coming on my show. It's been a great pleasure, Eric. That's great. Thanks so much for having me on. You are listening to Dig Life Deep, with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.